ushers are wondering if there might be any seats in your section, if you could slide in and make them visible so that people who are still looking for seats could find them. And uh, we are continuing a conversation today along the question of what happens when grace happens. And each message that we study under the theme of grace will begin with this prayer. And the prayer is projected on the screen. I invite you to, to read it and pray aloud with me. Dear God of all grace, please grant us the grace to receive your grace and grant us the grace to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I kept mine in a closet, not so I could hide it, but really so I could see it. I wanted to see it every day. No morning was complete without a good gander at this, my cummerbund of accomplishment. This one's not mine. Who knows what has happened to mine. But anybody who has ever had a Boy Scout merit badge sash knows the pleasure that comes from earning merit badges. I swam in order to earn the swimming badge. I rowed in order to earn the rowing badge. I worked with wood in order to earn the woodworking badge. Is there anything more satisfying more enjoyable than accumulating merit badges. Well, actually, there is something more enjoyable, and that is showing them off, <laughs> which is what I did every week on the one day in which our middle school allowed Boy Scouts to wear their scout uniforms complete with merit badge sash to campus. I was the king of England. I stunned all the commoners with my accomplishments. The guys were envious. Some of the girls fainted. <laughs> it was to their discipline that they were able to resist what I am confident was a terrible temptation, and that is to reach out and touch my merit badges. I know they wanted to touch the signaling badge and, and have me tap, tap, tap in Morse code their name. I just know it. I loved merit badges. Merit badges brought such clarity to a very complex world. Uh, there was uh, something to do and then award for doing it. Uh, uh, something to accomplish and then recognition for accomplishing it. You knew where you stood all of the time I loved merit badges so much that I became convinced that God created them. God grades on a merit system, right? God grades on a merit system. I mean, it only makes sense. Good people go to heaven. So be good. God grades on a merit system. Boy Scouts have their Boy Scout manual. God gave us the Bible. And the purpose of the Bible, I concluded, was to show me the different merit badges that I could earn. So I, as a young Christian, set out to earn as many merit badges as I possibly could. I read my Bible so I could earn the little oval badge that had an embroidered Bible on it. I, I prayed so that I could earn the heavenly merit badge that had the little hands folded in prayer on it and the little 
oval badge with the country church and the cross. I went to church so I could earn that. I was confident that all these good things I was doing were in actuality amassing for me a mountain of merit badges. In fact, I was convinced that the angels who were busy about sewing merit badges on sashes were just about to wear their fingers out. In fact, they were looking down from heaven to earth saying, that Lakato kid, he just earned another, he earned another, he earned another one. Why? Is there going to be a sash large enough for him to wear all of these badges that he is earning? Which is what I was looking forward to, and that is the great day, the final day, the day of judgment, in which God would come out with my merit badge sash on a velvet pillow. And he would present it to me. And I would receive the resounding applause of all of the multitudes. And I would forever wear my merit badge sash. And you would wear yours. You probably wouldn't have as many merit badges as I. But I'd wear merit badge sash through the streets of heaven. And I would feel very uh, uh, accomplished. But then I started running into a few thorny questions. How many merit badges does God require? I mean, if God saves good people, if good people go to heaven, shouldn't he tell us how good is good? At what point does a person become good? How many merit badges are required in order for a person to qualify as a good person. Can you think of a more fundamental question than that? And yet as I searched in the Bible, I, I, I had a hard time finding an answer. The honesty merit badge, for example. We all know God wants us to be honest, to tell the truth, to shoot straight. So how does one earn the honesty merit badge? Can you tell the truth 80% of the time and still earn it? 81%, 79%? Is exaggeration the same as lying? Somebody explain the rules to me. What if, what if you have to have the honesty merit badge to be saved and you have to have an 80 but I make a 79? Well, who's going to tell me? How do I know? Are there midterm exams? Where do you post the grades? I was getting frustrated. And then the question of how many good deeds do you have to do to offset the bad deeds? How many good deeds do you have to do to offset the bad deeds? Because I could be bad. So I must have to have some good things that I can do to offset bad things. Again, I was operating off of the assumption that good people go to heaven. So I wanted to be good. So how many good things must a person do to offset the bad things? The Bible says, do not covet. Okay. So if I do, what happens? How do I make up for it? Do I go wash the car that I coveted? Is there some way? Is there an exchange system? Is there a currency exchange here? The Bible says do not commit adultery. A serious offense. If a person commits adultery, what do they do? Five root canals with no anesthesia? Is there some kind of, you know, way to counterbalance? 
to make up for the penalty? How, 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 how do you settle the score? And the teachings of Jesus, at least in my middle school mind, didn't help things at all. He said, not only you shall not commit adultery, but if you look at a woman with the wrong intent, you've already committed adultery with her in her heart. Now, how is a teenage boy supposed to process something like that? I was a torrent of testosterone. This David saw Bathsheba in every classroom. And so how do you off balance that? How do you respond to it? How do you be good when you know you're being bad? Doesn't this pose a troubling question? What if, what if having done everything you could to be good, you're not good enough? What if having done everything you could to be good, you're still not good enough? This was the question that began to trouble me. I wasn't long into my Christian walk before I began to wonder if my merit badge sash was in jeopardy. I went to a preacher and asked him for advice. I said, how good is good? He said, that's not an easy question. He said, basically, you just want to do good. Do. Do good and you'll be saved. Do right and you'll be saved. Do more and you'll be saved. Do and be. Do and be. Do be, do be, do be, do be, do be, do be, do. Maybe you know the verse. Doobie, 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 doo. It is the most common song sung in the world. If you do, then you will be. The Buddhists sing it. The Muslims sing it. The Hindus sing it. Everybody has their different versions of it. But every religion in the world except one says do and you will be. Because every religion in the world is based on the philosophy that God saves good people. That good people go to heaven. Isn't that a common thought among us? I've been to dozens of funerals in my life, officiated many. And somewhere in the process of the funeral, of visiting with people, just inevitably somebody will say, boy, he was such a good man. She was such a good woman. If anybody's going to heaven, he is or she is. I don't do it because it's a funeral, but I'm tempted to press him right there and say, okay, no, what do you mean? Good. If I did press him, you know what they would say? They would say, well, I mean, he was so nice to everybody. He paid his bills. He loved his family. Is, is that what it means? Is that good? Is that a definition of good? Well, yeah, I mean, he he paid his taxes. He, He didn't hurt people. Is that good? There is no standard definition of goodness. I think this is a huge issue. If good people go to heaven, shouldn't we know what goodness is? Shouldn't we agree? Shouldn't there be a picture of, okay, here's a good person. Oh, good, I'm good. But we don't have the definition. Consequently, we're left wondering, what if I've not done enough to be good? What if I 
haven't forgiven enough or given enough or gone to church enough or gone to PTA enough or what if I've not done enough to be good? Let's say that I invited you to play a game of catch. I say, let's play a game of catch and see who wins. You say, what do you mean? What are the rules? How do you score points? And I don't answer your question. But I just toss you the ball, you catch it, and I say, "Uh uh-oh, you lost five points. (laughs) Would you like that kind of game? Would you play the kind of game where you didn't know the rules and you didn't know when you were winning or losing points? You might walk away from a game like that. You might walk away from a God like that. A God who demands that you be good but doesn't tell you how good you have to be. I would walk away from a God like that. I'd grow angry. I'd grow guilty. I'd grow insecure. I'd grow fearful. But that's not the kind of God you find in the Bible. That's not the kind of God that's described in the gospel. It's not the kind of God who chose not to grade on a merit system, who has chosen instead to save on a grace system. The flagship verse on the theme of grace might very well be Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith or through believing. And that is not of yourselves. It is what? It is the gift of God. What happens when grace happens? Well, as grace begins to happen... The result is a population of people who are gifted. Grace creates a gifted people. Now be careful. Don't think gifted in terms of gifted and talented, that department at school that really awards students for their own intellect. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a pure gift. What is a gift? Can you earn a gift? The minute you earn a gift, it stops being a, right? The minute you earn a gift, it no longer qualifies as a gift. So this is a huge statement. Contrary to all the merit badge religions of the world, the New Testament presents a God who says, I will give you the gift, the gift of salvation. You do not earn it, which is so good because you cannot earn it. You cannot. Your merit badges don't have any weight in heaven. According to the Bible, it's not that we are good people who don't know what to do, but the truth is we are bad people. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are lost. We are perishing. We are under the wrath of God. We are blinded. We are strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Now, our culture doesn't like paragraphs like that. We dislike the thought that humanity is made up of sinners. We've long since replaced those words with sentences like we are compulsive or we are recovering or we are addicted. In this modern day, nobody is actually wicked 
right? Nobody is wicked. Poorly parented, yeah, unfortunate, certainly. But nobody is a wretch. Have you noticed that word in the most famous song about grace that we sing? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a decent person like me. Oh, no. That saved a wretch, a wretch like me. Can that be true? Overstating the case there, John Newton. That was true back in the 1800s when you wrote the hymn. But we're more sophisticated now. We're not wretches. We're not sinners. We have our disorders. <laughs> but we're not sinners, are we? You're overstating the case. I think that's the same mentality that the teenage boy had. <clears throat> whom I called on the phone a few years ago, the teenage boy who took my teenage daughter, she was a teenager at the time, to the winter formal. <clears throat> he did more than take my daughter, I found out. He took a fifth of whiskey with him. Parents have a way of finding these things out, young people. <laughs> they just do. Word reached me before the evening was a couple of hours old that my daughter had been taken to the winter formal by a guy who was also touting a fifth of whiskey. Apparently, he underestimated the loyalty that fathers have to their daughters. <laughs> Apparently, he was unaware that most fathers will gladly spend life on death row <clears throat> in exchange for the opportunity to settle the score now, whether he drank or not, I guess was not my business, but it sure was my business if he was driving a car in which my daughter was riding. So I called him. Young people, we parents can find phone numbers. <laughs> and I traced down his phone number, and I called him, yes, right in the middle of the banquet. Yes. While everybody was seated there in their nice little tuxedos and gowns, his phone rang, and he answered it and there was the father of his date calling him I knew he would be surprised I knew my daughter would be mortified but I didn't care now I don't think he took it as seriously as I did I mean he he was agreeable he conceded he didn't repent Okay, yes sir, okay, okay. And I just had the feeling that the minute he hung up, he turned to his buddies and said something like, well, he's sure making a big deal out of this. Moms and dads, was I making a big deal out of that? Was I overstating the case? Was I overreacting? No, why? Because I had entrusted to him my most treasured, not possession, a human being. I had entrusted to him the most valuable privilege that I have to be a father of a human being. And he was not respecting. In my mind, he was at that moment behaving like a wretch. That was wretched behavior. Am I overstating the case? I don't think so. Is scripture overstating the case? 
when the Holy Father looks down upon the world that has turned away from him and he responds with anger. Though he has given us bodies for his glory we use them for our pleasure. Though he has given us possessions for his honor we use them for our promotion. Though he has given us relationships for our pastoring we use them even in Abuse them. We sin. The Bible calls this sin. The Bible calls this sin because at its root, sin is placing I over God. And the middle letter of sin is I. And sin makes a big deal out of I and a small deal out of God. Jesus explained sin by a very brief parable, just one paragraph, but it's profound. He said a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together ten servants and gave them ten pounds of silver to invest for him while he was gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him saying they did not want him to be their king. Now who's who in this story? Jesus is the king. We are the people. And we have told Jesus, we don't want you to be our king. In our deeds, in our actions, we have said, you know, I think I'll be king. Thank you. I know how you feel about this, but I'm in charge today. I'll be king. Thank you. The Bible calls this sin. Sin is not a regrettable lapse or an occasional stumble or a bad habit. Sin is insurrection against God. Sin stages a coup against God's regime. Sin lays claim to the throne, storms the castle, and tells God to get out and not come back. Sin is insurrection, and you are an insurrectionist. And so am I. Every single one of us. One of the most stinging indictments in the Bible about humanity is in Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, not some of us, but each of us has turned to his own way. When God showed us his way, we said, thank you, but no thank you, I'll go my way. We've gone each to his own way. Your way may be intoxication. My way may be accumulation. Another person's way might be religious dedication. Another person's way might be uh, stimulation. But we've all found our own way. It's not that a few of us have, but all of us have. Paul said, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, I don't really like to talk about sin. And I know it really doesn't put you in a good mood for me to tell you that you're a sinner. That's not something that you get excited about being on the topic menu for the day. But here's the point, church. Any understanding of grace must include a candid conversation about sin. It just has to, or it's not grace. For you to understand the beauty of grace, you must understand, and I must understand, the severity of sin. In order for us to understand how great God's grace is, we need to understand how ugly our rebellion is. 
Now here in the ballroom of the teenage winter formal, we banter it back and forth. We say, oh, it's not that serious what we do. It's not that bad what we do. It's not that ugly what we do. But listen, from the perspective of God, we have rebelled against what is His. And it is a very serious, very serious issue. Several times in my life, I've had skin cancers cut off of my face. Chalk it up to growing up in the era prior to sunscreen. The reason I've had skin cancers cut off is because one of our members here is a dermatologist. And he would oftentimes catch me after services and look at my face and say, you've got, the, you've got to get that cut off. I would dismiss it as nothing serious. Everybody has blemishes, Right? Everybody's got a mark or two here and there. What cause, what cause for concern is there? He kept on. He kept on. That Van Perry did. He kept on and he kept on. Until finally I relented. I said, okay, okay, I'll go see your doctor friend who cuts those things off. But even then I postponed it. I waited to schedule it. I didn't want to take up a day and go to that. Finally I went in. The doctor took a look at the marks the places he said yeah we got to get those things cut off and we got to do it pretty soon yeah well I've got a busy summer can I do it in the fall maybe I could do it after Christmas you know I travel some I don't want to just boy he could tell I was not taking it seriously so he stood up and he went into his office and he came back with a notebook and that notebook had photographs in it of people who had not had their cancers removed Do you think those photos were pretty? They were not. Do you think I waited much longer before I scheduled my appointment? I did not. What did he do? He showed me the gravity of my condition. And once I saw the gravity of my condition, I was ready for help. Scripture is very clear in showing us the gravity of our condition. Basically, it comes down to this. That God has a great dream. And that dream is a new kingdom. And that new kingdom is going to be populated by people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But that kingdom will be populated by people who have agreed that he is the king and not them. Period. People who have cast their lot with him. And what will make heaven heavenly is not just that there will be no death and not just that there will be no sickness, but that there will be no sin. There will be no insurrection. There will be no rebellion. You and I will be of one accord 24 hours a day, the whole time we're in heaven, from beginning all the way through eternity. We will agree there's only one king. And I won't compete with you and you won't compete with me. I won't compare myself with you. I won't, you won't compare yourself with me. Because we will only live to enjoy the splendor of the king of kings. That is the kingdom for which God is preparing us. And there is only one stipulation. And that is you have your sin removed. You cannot carry that prideful spirit, that arrogant spirit, that self-centered spirit into the kingdom with you. You simply cannot. For we are saved by grace through faith. Not by works so no one can boast. There will be no boasting in heaven. Because all of those merit badge sashes will be on the ground. That's how seriously God takes our sin. And once we understand 
the wonders of God's plan for us. Then we can see the beauty of his provision for us. Now that's not to say that humanity has no decency. That's not to say that your works have no merit. But listen, that is to say that decency and human merit are but straw compared to the debt that we have before a holy God. And we do not need more works to do, but we need someone to do the work for us. God does not save good people. Okay, let me try it like this. Good people do not go to heaven. You know why? Because there are none. There are none. But God does save sinners. He does save sinners. He does save those who agree that they are in need of grace. That they are in need of forgiveness. He does justify the wicked. Romans 4, 5. He does extend the hand of grace to those who say, Have mercy upon me for I am a sinner. I don't know if you've seen this passage in Isaiah 55. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Who comes to God's table? You who have no money. You whose pockets are empty. You who are bankrupt. Those of you who have nothing to bring. Those of you who are spiritually impoverished. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Not the affluent in spirit. Who think they have everything. Jesus said I did not come to call the righteous. But the sinners. The sinners. Those who agree with him. That we are spiritually impoverished. And in need of his grace. Yet how can God give grace to insurrectionists? Doesn't our rebellion deserve punishment? Wouldn't a just God punish such insurrection? Yes he would. And next week... I'm going to tell you when he punished it and who took the punishment for you. But for this week, will you ponder and meditate upon this thought? That when it comes to salvation, your merits do not matter. When it comes to salvation, your merits do not matter. Your achievements be they splendid. Add nothing to what God has given to you through Jesus Christ, His Son. Because it is a gift. And we're quick to add, just as your merits add nothing, your demerits, your sins, be they ever putrid, do not remove or take away from the free gift of salvation that God has given to you through Jesus Christ so your merits do not add to salvation you cannot boast your demerits do not take to salvation you do not be, need to be afraid you don't brag and you don't stay awake either you just live in a state of God's wonderful unending grace and you scratch your head like I do every so often and realize that God has a plan to populate his kingdom with reformed resurrectionists and rebels like you and me who will spend all of eternity pondering the wonders of this amazing 
amazing grace.